0: In Afghanistan, really hard to get access to the educational system if you're a woman. And they've opened up these schools that are teaching women to code, get their own jobs right and be much more independent, kind of outside of this ridiculous system they have (laughs) there, right, where women can't go to school. And in some cases, they're even teaching them about crypto. They're able to pay them in crypto. You know, when we saw disaster in Afghanistan these last few months or over the last year, when they were getting kind of cut off from the rest of the financial system, crypto was one of the few ways people were able to get aid into the country.
1: Welcome to Cause and Purpose, the show about leaders, innovators, and change agents working on the front lines to solve some of the world's greatest social challenges. I'm Mike Spear, and we've got a special treat in store for you today. While most of our episodes are more about the stories of nonprofit and social enterprise leaders, this week's show is a bit more tactical. Alex Wilson is here, who along with his co-founder, Pat, created The Giving Block, an online fundraising platform that empowers nonprofit organizations to accept cryptocurrency and NFT donations from all over the world. We'll cover all the cryptocurrency basics. What is it? Why is it important for nonprofits to know about? And how organizations can think about and start to engage the growing community of crypto philanthropists out there. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Alex, thanks so much for joining, man. Uh, Excited to have you on the show and talk about some crypto donations. Yeah, Mike. Pumped to be here. Thanks for having me. How did you get into crypto and, and also, you know, where did your love of philanthropy and your, your interest in social impact come from and, and putting those two together for crypto philanthropy?
0: Yeah. So it's it starts as kind of two different stories and then they kind of came together. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, I was sort of your more typical management consultant before starting the giving block. Um, and we were working with a lot of fortune 500 companies on different emerging tech at the time it was kind of a mixture of like iot ai back then it was really more enterprise blockchain so through my work i was starting to hear people just mention crypto and bitcoin a bit more often and in my free time you know back in 2016 and 2017 just basically became obsessed with crypto Um, and one of the things that really hooked me on it was actually related to sort of the human rights case for Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Um, As I went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and started learning about it, of course, people were often talking about it as as an investment case, right? Like this is digital gold, this is hedge against inflation, all these other things you hear people talk about. But then I started to discover some of the work that people were doing with Bitcoin in countries like Venezuela, for example, where they had hyperinflation, they had a really corrupt government, they had all sorts of issues with their financial system there. And people were turning to Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies as a better alternative to their kind of local currency. And it was that point when I really got, you know, basically hooked on crypto because I could see that use case playing out, you know, among a lot of different countries. Right. It wasn't that people were using Bitcoin to buy coffee at Starbucks in the U.S., Um, Crypto was helping people in countries where they didn't have the stability of the US dollar in our financial system. So that's where kind of the the love of social impact and crypto started to overlap. Um, And then that ties in well to how we started the Giving Block, because around that same time I got one of my college friends interested in crypto, Pat Duffy, who became my co-founder. We went to Wake Forest together. We were both living in D.C. together after college, too. And I dragged him into buying a little bit of crypto and trading some crypto. And he happened to be working at a nonprofit at the time. So essentially, I was the crypto guy. He was the nonprofit guy. He knew how nonprofits operated. I knew how crypto worked. And in late 2017, you know, he had the idea of, hey, why don't we set up the Lupus Foundation where he was working at the time to start accepting crypto. And then of course, once we figured out how to do it once, we're like, all right, this is something we can replicate. This is something we can help a lot of nonprofits do. And ultimately, with the lens of this is going to be a huge donor demographic for nonprofits in the coming years, if crypto keeps growing the way we think it's going to grow.
1: Give us the elevator pitch. What's the giving block and why should organizations care about it?
0: I mean, at the highest level possible, we're trying to make it really, really easy for nonprofits to tap into this new donor demographic of crypto users. And our approach has always been unique in the sense that we don't view this as just another donation method. We really want nonprofits to think about this like a donor demographic because anyone can figure out a way to accept Bitcoin and plop a donation button on their website, but actually fundraising it is a whole other ball game. So when we work with nonprofits, we actually wanna help them become good crypto fundraisers and have a strategy around building a crypto fundraising program. Of course, we wanna supply the product and the technology to make that as easy as possible for them, but we're hoping to teach them a way to take that a step further and actually ensure
1: that they're building a crypto fundraising program. You know, when you guys launched crypto with the Lupus Foundation, did they see an immediate lift, you know, donations rolling in right off the bat or kind of how did that go for them?
0: It was a pretty slow process just to get anyone to even consider crypto as a donation method back in 2017, 2018, even 2019. Since not many nonprofits were doing it, it was quite the uphill battle for us. So it took us you know, over a year of just convincing <laughs> before we could even try anything. But they did see some donations immediately. I mean, this wasn't you know, millions of donations, but certainly thousands of donations starting to, to come in. And what we're seeing is for a lot of organizations, the longer that they take crypto, the better their return has been because they start to build a brand, get their name out there in the community. So there is a pretty good first mover advantage for nonprofits that are getting signed up now versus ones that wait three to five years when everyone's doing it.
1: Did this sort of adoption of crypto philanthropy have anything to do with the pineapple fund? How did that impact the awareness of crypto as a tool for making donations to nonprofits?
0: Yeah. So we, we didn't personally have a direct connection to the pineapple fund, but it was certainly really inspirational for us and was kind of the tipping point of where we were like, wow. This is pretty crazy. This is going to be a huge deal (laughs) Um, when we saw the Pineapple Fund kind of happening in real time on Reddit in December 2017. And you know, you saw the nonprofit skepticism of is this stranger on the Internet really going to be giving away millions of dollars of Bitcoin, especially when they would never received a gift of Bitcoin before or very few of the recipients had. And ultimately, what we decided to do was actually interview all of those nonprofits that were a recipient of the Pineapple Fund and learned. What challenges did they have, Um, you know, what went well, what didn't go well. And we found a lot of them didn't have a great solution for either accepting the crypto even as a one off time gift, or they didn't really have a plan going forward for how they were going to fundraise additional gifts. So funny enough, many of these nonprofits got set up to accept crypto for the first time, and many of them ended up switching over to using our platform because it was much more comprehensive. Right. It was really the first platform built for nonprofits, and we were actually helping them become good at crypto fundraising. Um, so, most of those recipients are our clients now, but that was that was the first sort of public moment of crypto philanthropy. In some ways, you could say crypto philanthropy was kind of born with the Pineapple Fund. Okay, so lots of nonprofits kind of scrambling just to open any sort of wallet or exchange account just to be able to get the gift in. Some of them did a, <laughs> a better job than others because I think there was a lot more to think through than a lot of them realized at the time since it was such a new concept. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, it's awesome. For anybody who doesn't know, I guess we should probably give a little bit of background. The Pineapple Fund was created by some person who is totally anonymous. Nobody knows who they are, where they live, even you know their gender or age or anything like that. Who just They ended up making a ton of money on crypto. Uh, the tagline on their website I love. It says, because when you have enough money, money doesn't matter. And they ended up donating fifty five million dollars to various causes just out of their crypto bank. So probably one of the earliest, biggest crypto philanthropists out there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Such a cool story. And, you know, it's we wrote a really long form article about it. And, you know, we're always kind of thinking in the back of our mind, like, will the pineapple fund sort of ever come back? Right. Or who's going to be sort of the next pineapple fund? Um, It'll be interesting because they've stayed relatively quiet
1: ever since those donations were paid out. And we haven't heard haven't heard too much since then. Using cryptocurrency as a way to bank the previously unbankable, uh, essentially giving access to a banking system for people that wouldn't be able to qualify necessarily for fiat currency, bank accounts and stuff like that. Is is that an area that we can dive into or. uh, Yeah. Thoughts on that? Yeah, Happy
0: to. Um, I mean, just to, to kick it off, right. The very concept of Bitcoin is meant to be a way of sort of democratizing money and finance. Um, and a huge part of that is simply the accessibility, right? Anyone with a, you know, a device that can access the internet, basically, can open a Bitcoin wallet for free and buy, sell, trade Bitcoin anywhere in the world 24-7. There is no uh, bank that says, or says you can or can't. <laughs> have Bitcoin, right? So the accessibility alone is is pretty remarkable. One really cool story on that real quick with one of our clients. I don't know if you've heard of the organization Code to Inspire? No, I'm not familiar with them. So they were one of our earliest clients actually. They have, I think a couple schools now in Afghanistan teaching women how to code. Um, Because, of course, in Afghanistan, really hard to get access to the educational system if you're a woman and they've opened up these schools that are teaching women to code, get their own jobs, right, and be much more independent, kind of outside of this ridiculous system they have (laughs) there, right, where women can't go to school. And in some cases, they're even teaching them about crypto. They're able to pay them in crypto. You know, when we saw the um, kind of disaster in Afghanistan these last few months or over the last year, when they were getting kind of cut off from the rest of the financial system, crypto was one of the few ways people were able to get aid into the country. So we saw some really interesting use cases around that play out
1: as well. You guys launched recently a fund uh, to help people in the Ukraine. Is that following kind of a similar strategy?
0: Yeah, it is. So, I mean, a, a lot of our clients that we work with, even though they might be based in the U.S., they tend to have international operations, right? Like a Save the Children, a Direct Relief, International Megacorp. Um, groups like that. So a lot of them have started taking crypto gifts to fund their relief efforts in Ukraine. Um, So in this case, though, it's a little bit different than the Afghanistan situation, because in this case, they're actually taking the crypto. It's being converted to local currency, and then they're using the local currency to buy supplies, you know, deliver cash. However, they're normally delivering aid. Um, So a bit different, but in the end, yeah, a really quick way to kind of mobilize fundraising efforts around the world.
1: How how would you define cryptocurrency and kind of what is it what does it mean and and what's its role in our economic system?
0: When I explain what Bitcoin and and other cryptocurrencies are more broadly, I think it's really important to focus on what are the the features and functionality that make it unique rather than you know like a really technical definition, right? Like (laughs) most people need to understand how it's helping people, right? How it's improving people's lives, more so than understanding how Bitcoin mining works, right? At least in the beginning. Um, and that's the same thing we tell nonprofits, right? Sometimes people get too caught up in the, the technical details. Um, but it's just like, you know, your laptop or the internet, right? You know how to use your laptop and connect to the internet, but you don't actually know how the internet works, right? Like, <laughs> and you don't need to necessarily, <laughs> as long as you can interact with it all right. So, with Bitcoin, if we use that as an example, you know, at its core, it's meant to be a digital peer to peer cash system so that you and I can transact directly on the internet without having an intermediary. So there's no bank, there's no payment processor necessary. It would be you know, me deciding to send you, let's say 50 bucks worth of Bitcoin and it goes directly into your Bitcoin wallet without needing to go through a middleman essentially. So it's really the first peer-to-peer money that we've ever had. And it's also unique because it's digitally native. Right There, there was never and there is not a physical form of it. It's just digital. Um, which also has allowed it to be completely global and borderless in nature, right? If I send you Bitcoin and you're in another country or another city, it doesn't matter. You know, the the Bitcoin wallets will operate anywhere there's a connection to the internet essentially, which has also meant that unlike, you know, let's say other trading markets, it's 24 seven. If you wanna buy and sell Bitcoin, you can do that 24 seven unlike let's say a local stock market that's essentially open during business hours. A couple of the other key features that has made it particularly popular these last few years is, you know, you see a lot of headlines around things like inflation, Um, inflation being a lot higher this year and last year than we've seen in recent history. And a lot of people have turned to Bitcoin as what they see as like a digital gold equivalent or ultimately some sort of store of value. Um, And the reason for that is because with Bitcoin, for example, there's only ever going to be 21 million coins in circulation. It's a fixed number. There's not someone who can just wake up tomorrow and say, actually, I think there should be 31 million. It's always going to be 21 million. So that certainty in the supply is reassuring for people, right, especially people in countries where they've seen hyperinflation. Right. That's why I mentioned earlier. It's so popular in places like Venezuela, where their inflation has been so crazy these last few years, where their cash has become almost worthless in a really short matter of time. Um, And they see Bitcoin as a way of sort of opting out of that system and having an alternative that's a bit more stable for them, which, you know, a lot of people complain about Bitcoin and crypto's volatility, but relative to some of those inflation numbers, it's actually relatively stable. On a long enough time frame, it's actually volatile to the upside, not the downside, which is always, uh, I think, the opposite of the way people think about it. You know, over the last five and 10 year period, Bitcoin and crypto have been the best appreciating assets in the world. I mean, nothing else has outperformed it. So the volatility really is to the upside, as long as you're not looking at it on a day to day basis.
1: What are these currencies backed by and how are there more being created while there's still a limit?
0: Yeah. So on the first point around mining and and sort of the supply, so out of the 21 million, only roughly 18 million or so in circulation. Those remaining coins to get to the 21 million will be released over, I think it's roughly like another 100 years. Um, so over time, it's slowly being introduced in the circulation. But that end number will remain 21 million. Um, so that's how the miners are, are essentially mining these new coins in the process. And when it comes to setting the, the price of crypto, you know, it's completely determined by buyers and sellers in these markets. So just like stocks, right, if there's more buyers and sellers, the price goes up. If there's more sellers and buyers, price goes down. So it's truly supply and demand driven. Um, there's no like fixed price or, or anything like that on it. And when it comes to, you know, what people always say is like, well, what is it backed by? Or, or people like to say it's not backed by anything, right? And the funny thing is, in some ways, it's backed by the technology and kind of the certainty of, you know, for example, there's only 21 million, you can use it 24 seven, everyone has access to it. It's kind of backed by that functionality and features, but at the same time, it not being backed by a government or an entity at all, is also what makes it valuable because they know it's not tied to one country's success, one company's success or one individual's success. It's sort of this community aspect of it um, where there's a network effect to, to how successful Bitcoin becomes. So people are investing in that aspect of it. And you know, for a lot of traditional investors, it's a hard pill to swallow because they want to invest in equity in a company right, or a currency that's backed by a
1: big government. And this kind of flips that whole model on its head. I think it's hard to talk about the coins themselves and the trading mechanisms without talking about the blockchain a little bit and kind of, are you able to define that for us, for for the audience here?
0: Yeah, I mean, so if we talk about the term blockchain more broadly, I mean, this is essentially the underlying technology behind Bitcoin and a lot of other cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin just happened to be, you know, the first application of it and now, of course, the most popular application of it. But there's been now thousands of other cryptocurrencies that also use blockchain that have sprung up since then. But really, you know, when you think about what it actually is, it's it's really like a public ledger system. Every transaction on these blockchains is permanent and has sort of this permanent audit trail. So you can see every transaction ever since the first Bitcoin transaction. You can follow it all the way back up until today. You can see transactions happening in real time. So it's introduced this you know, almost like triple entry accounting system in in some ways, right, where there's this transparent audit trail until the end of time. And when those transactions are made, there is no reversing it. It is truly permanent.
1: So I've noticed over the past year or so, the major coins have had some pretty extreme fluctuations. Like I think Bitcoin and uh, Ethereum is now about half the value they were back in November. Can Mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about that volatility and kind of what you expect from the future of crypto? I mean, I would say I am, of
0: course, biased and, you know, <laughs> I ultimately think crypto continues to become more popular over time. Like the, the number of people interested in crypto and owning crypto is going up dramatically. You know, it's over 300 million people globally now that use crypto. Um, I think we'll continue to see a lot of volatility and, and price swings in both directions. but I do think over time it becomes less volatile as more people enter the market and as more money enters the market. I mean crypto is a you know total worth a couple trillion dollars now or, or maybe slightly less, which sounds like a lot of money, but that's small when you compare it to something like the US stock market, for example. So it doesn't take nearly as much money to move prices up or down because the market is relatively small still. So the larger that market becomes, the less likely it'll be this volatile in the future. So some of it is you know, a maturity kind of thing, right? And you can think of it almost a bit more like high growth tech stocks rather, right? That tend to be much more volatile than the traditional stock market. It, where it's kind of in this early growth phase, early adoption phase. But it's going to kind of mature out of that phase eventually. It's hard to say when, but it's it's probably not going away anytime soon.
1: <laughs> Why are there so many coins? I mean, I think giving block, you guys accept close to 100 different currencies. Are there differences between them? Why is each one unique? In general, you'll continue, I think,
0: to see a lot of new cryptocurrencies popping up essentially every day. I mean, because it's such a new industry, it's still incredibly competitive and just like you saw a ton of well even let's say the the 90s going into 2000s right with the internet dot com boom and bubble and all that kind of stuff most startups don't make it right whether you're talking about that boom period or in general right i think it's something crazy like 90 95% of startups just don't make it oh yeah um and you can apply that same kind of thinking to crypto the majority of them will not make it but it's hard to say this early on which ones are going to stick around right like at this point it's pretty clear bitcoin has remained number one and i don't know how quickly that would ever change um, bitcoin and ethereum have kind of stayed one and two for for a while now and there's a lot of other coins kind of vying for those top spots but kind of what you were alluding to is some are designed with different use cases in mind um, like a lot of people would say you can't even really compare bitcoin and ethereum because what people are trying to do with them is is quite different and then there's other cases like dogecoin which it was you know literally meant to be a joke <laughs> um, so, there's a lot of interesting history and use cases behind each one, but long story short, I think we're going to keep seeing a lot of new cryptocurrencies, and I'm sure there's going to be popular cryptocurrencies in the future that haven't even been started yet.
1: How do you engage somebody interested in giving crypto differently than you might through traditional grassroots means, or, or you know larger philanthropy, major gifts?
0: I would say one thing nonprofits should always think about is even just the age demographics of the crypto users or the typical crypto users, right? a ton of millennials and Gen Zs. You know, these, weren't, these weren't and aren't the donors who are mailing a check every month. <laughs> these tend to be net new donors and net new dollars. Because when we talk to a lot of these donors, they tell us they actually only donate crypto. And this is the first time they've really started to donate in a more consistent, consistent or meaningful way because so many of these younger donors have the majority of their wealth stored in crypto. 83% of millennial millionaires own crypto, and more than half have at least 50% of their wealth in crypto, and nearly a third have at least three quarters of their wealth in crypto. When I first read those numbers, I had to reread it like four times to make sure I was reading that correctly, (laughs) because it's such a staggering number. So I would say, keep that in mind when you're thinking about crypto, right? If you're not set up to accept crypto, for a lot of these donors, you're just not on the menu and they're gonna essentially go somewhere else that is accepting crypto. It's very unlikely, although we do see it sometimes, that a donor is going to reach out and try to convince you to accept crypto. Usually they're not gonna take the time to email you and you know <laughs> spend a bunch of time doing that. So that's, that's certainly a big thing to keep in mind with these donors, because a lot of the nonprofits we work with, they'll say, well, we've never had someone reach out wanting to give crypto. And it's like, well, yeah, that's because they went somewhere else, essentially. And then they're pleasantly surprised by how many new donors they find willing to give them crypto once they've announced that they now take crypto. That brings up another point, too. You know, once you start accepting crypto, if you don't tell anyone you're accepting crypto, you're probably not going to get a ton of donations. So that's something we help nonprofits with as well, right? Make sure it's on your website. It's easy to find. You've got good messaging around it. You're weaving in reminders to your existing digital marketing strategies and campaigns that is like, hey, we take crypto now. By the way, did you know donating crypto can save you money on your taxes? Like, you know, all these different things that kind of keep a drumbeat going, and weaving these things into their existing marketing plans.
1: How come crypto donations are so much larger on average? Why is the average so much higher, and why has it been increasing year over year?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, one of the biggest driver for crypto gifts in general is just how tax efficient they are for a lot of donors. So for a donor and for the the nonprofit organization, it's very similar to a stock donation or other non-cash donation that's appreciated in value. So for the donor, that means if they're donating Bitcoin that's appreciated in value, when they donate that to the nonprofit, they don't have to pay capital gains taxes on it and they get a write-off that's equal to the fair market value at the time of donation. So for a lot of people in the US, for example, that could be a, let's call it a 20 to 30% difference in how large their deduction is and how much they're able to donate. And that's a win for the charity too because they're essentially getting 20 to 30% more because they're getting those pre-tax dollars. And as a charity, they're not paying tax on it either. So you can see why both sides you know, love the prospect of getting 20 to 30% more money and it's better tax situation for the donor as well. So what we're finding is a lot of these donors are going to their financial advisors, their accountants, whoever's helping them you know, manage their money, and saying, you know, I want to make a donation, what's the most tax efficient way for me to give? And usually these advisors are going to tell them, you know, donate your most highly appreciated asset first, which for a lot of people tends to be crypto if they've held it, especially for a couple of years now. Um, so they end up donating crypto And because it's a sort of a tax incentivized gift in some ways, they usually want to donate a larger amount because they're trying to offset a certain amount in taxes. Whereas when someone's donating, let's say 100 bucks, 200 bucks, or even a little bit more, it's usually not enough to make a huge difference for your tax situation. It has to be pretty sizable to make a dent in in some of these investors' taxes. So that's part of the reason you're seeing it. It's much more of a strategic gift than it is, you know, a monthly
1: $100 gift or something like that. Do you think there's an opportunity for monthly recurring donations with crypto? Is that something that would even work in crypto or, or not? So it's, it's
0: not something you can technically do very easily with crypto, and that's meant to be a, a feature, not really a bug, <laughs> because crypto transactions are what people refer to as push transactions versus a pull transaction if you use something like a credit card. You know, when you swipe your credit card somewhere, you enter in your credit card info, you're essentially getting charged on your card for let's say $100. And that's something you can set up to happen once a month and basically authorize. With crypto, it's a bit different because you as the the owner of the crypto or the user of that crypto wallet has to essentially approve that transaction every time. So you have to go in, enter in the charity's wallet address and click send. There's not a way for the charity to just pull the money out of your wallet every month. There's some interesting ways where we're trying to essentially build around that that would allow people to set up a monthly recurring donation if they, for example, pre-funded a wallet with a certain amount and sent it to a smart contract. So let's say you put in $1,200 and then you authorized 100 a month to be withdrawn every 30 days or something like that. So there's some workarounds we're building on, on stuff like that. But kind of the, the basic functionality doesn't allow for that, unfortunately.
1: I've noticed on, on your site, as well as um, I think Coinbase is doing something like this and some of the other folks out there starting to build larger funds uh, to market and then have people donate to the, the concept rather than a specific organization then distribute the funds from there what, what's that dynamic like how, how is it working you know kind of what do you see the future of that as
0: yeah so something we launched in the fall was what we called cause funds and we recently rebranded those to be impact index funds to better align with kind of the, the crypto investor mindset but the general concept is you know we have a couple different types of funds. One is our crypto adoption fund, which is a way for someone to come to our platform, send one transaction, and have it evenly split to all of the nonprofits we work with. The other way they can donate, if they're not donating directly to a charity, is they can donate to one of the cause funds. And for example, let's say you want to donate to the environmental cause fund. Your donation to that fund is going to be split to the, you know, 20 or so, let's say environmental groups that we work with. And this is something we heard donors ask for a lot. And I think part of this is because they are younger donors. A lot of them don't have relationships with individual brands or organizations yet. And so they just know they want to support environmental causes, but they're not sure which one. And so they rely on us to bring them sort of a vetted group, like an index fund, essentially, of nonprofits that they can trust. And it's also really resonated with a lot of donors because this is also a great way for for smaller and mid-sized charities to get a piece of the action that they might not otherwise, when people donate to larger groups because of the sort of brand recognition that they have. Um, So this is a great way for donors to be able to fund a lot of the more innovative ideas that smaller nonprofits are working on, while still donating to the larger causes too, and kind of spreading their impact among more
1: organizations. Do the nonprofits in those cases get the donor information, or is that uh, that not passing along in the fund context?
0: In that case, we can't because it would just be, <laughs>
1: we'd be giving that donor's information to so many nonprofits that I think they'd kill us. <laughs> Probably. How else would you round out the profile of somebody likely to donate crypto versus a more traditional donor?
0: Yeah, I mean, I would say it's, it's changing a bit now and starting to normalize more with the general demographics as it gets more mainstream. But, you know, the early adopters were certainly in the bucket of being incredibly tech savvy you know, often even working at startups and tech companies and things like that and based in major cities. And we still see a lot of that. And they, they tend to be a bit on the wealthier side, I would say, because often they had some disposable income to be able to invest in crypto in the first place. Or if not, you know, they became wealthy because of crypto. Um, that's certainly a pretty common scenario, too. But end of the day, because they are younger, one important thing that comes along with that is that everything they do is is digital essentially, right? Like they're not gonna, you know, look at the, the flyers that get mailed out, asking for donations, ask people to mail a check. It has to be a very digital strategy to reach these donors. And even, you know, where they hang out on the internet can be a bit different than the other donors. For example, with crypto, the most popular social media channel is actually Twitter, which I know from talking to a lot of our clients is, is very different than what they're seeing with their traditional donors who might skew a bit older and, and use, let's say Facebook primarily, is something we
1: hear a lot. Are younger folks signing on to Twitter again?
0: No, I, I think you're you're right in the sense that, you know, Instagram and TikTok and stuff like that is is incredibly popular with younger people. I think the reason Twitter became so popular in the crypto community is because it's, as far as I know, always been pretty popular in the broader sort of tech community, sort of the Silicon Valley startup community across the country. Twitter has always been a place where you know, I think people kind of talked and, and hung out, kind of the, the geekier crowd, for for lack of a better way of putting it. So that's where you saw a lot of the early adopters and that's kind of hung around and it started to get the name of, you know, Crypto Twitter, just kind of this subset of the community that just hangs out on Twitter all day.
1: <laughs> yeah. So give us like the top five ways that nonprofits can really take advantage of crypto donations.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, if you're already accepting crypto, one thing we always tell nonprofits to do is, you know first of all, you have to talk about it, which we briefly mentioned earlier, right? So make sure you're layering it into your existing marketing. So if you have a gala coming up or a charity walk or, or other events, you know, it's, it's not a ton of work to add in a message during that event or around the marketing of it saying, hey, by the way, we also take crypto now, right? And having that donate crypto button alongside the other ways people can give, that's an easy opportunity to get some more donations. And, and that fits in with, you know, this general concept of like, you know, make sure to keep the drumbeat going year round. Right. This isn't just something you start accepting crypto and you talk about it once and then, you know, wait for the money to come in. <laughs> You've got to got to have a consistent effort around this. And it is very much one of those things where the more effort you put into it, the better your results tend to be. I mean, we, we see a difference in the nonprofits that, you know, put some time and effort to talking about this on social media or newsletters. Or, or at events and things like that versus those who just get set up to take crypto and kind of sit back and, and wait for the money to come in. Right, there's, there's certainly a difference in performance because one thing too with these donors is, although you know, they might not get the personal recognition, they like the recognition of crypto donations more broadly as a concept. And what I mean by that is, you know, they love to see you know, these large nonprofits that they recognize, like let's say a Save the Children, tweet out, you know, saying, thank you for your, let's just say, million dollar Bitcoin donation, right? Like, this is going to help thousands of kids around the world in XYZ way. Like, they love that as sort of a legitimizing factor of crypto when nonprofits are, you know, kind of openly thanking crypto donors, even if their name isn't specifically involved or tied to it or in any way like that. You know, it kind of helps this cycle of, of making crypto more widely adopted and more widely used. So that's, that's something that's pretty important as well. Some of the other stuff that I would say is really important too, is you know if if organizations are working with us, we see a ton of fundraising around the campaigns that we run too. Um, so stuff like Crypto Giving Tuesday, NF Tuesday, you know we've got our year-end bag season campaign. Um, this week or next week, we're going to be announcing one of our biggest crypto fundraising campaigns ever, where there's going to be millions of dollars in matches available. Um, we'll be able to share more details on that soon, but you know, making sure you're participating in these, you know, industry-wide initiatives where it's way easier to get in front of crypto donors than any other time of the year. Um, and, you know, it's important to, to kind of speak up and, and participate in those. And in a lot of cases, we'll even create marketing toolkits so that nonprofits have kind of a copy and paste way to, to talk about a lot of this and, and be comfortable that they're not, you know, writing Bitcoin as two words and
1: stuff like that. Should organizations do you keep them in the cryptocurrencies or do you translate them to US dollars to put them into your account? Do you have any advice on on that? Yeah. I mean in
0: general, we try to stay out of that decision um, for nonprofits because we don't want to fall into the bucket of giving any nonprofit sort of financial advice. It's really a you know something that the finance team needs to decide. But what I will say is, you know, most of our nonprofits opt for that automatic conversion. And it seems like a huge driving factor of that is because nonprofits are applying the same gift acceptance policy as they have for stocks or other non cash gifts, which, you know, in most cases says we're converting all the stock donations we get for cash, right, as soon as we get it. Um, so that's what we're seeing as the most common scenario. But yeah, I, I would say like 90% or more of our nonprofits opt for that
1: automatic conversion to cash. How did you and Pat actually meet? I know you're friends from college, but. Is there, is there a good story to how you guys first connected?
0: No, there's, there's not really like a, a good story of like the first meeting or anything like that. Just <laughs> got to know each other in, in college and, and actually we became more close after college rather than in college. So we were more kind of a, I mean, we were friends in college but we, we certainly got a lot closer after we both
1: graduated. How do you guys divide the role? How do you make decisions internally? Like, is there a CEO? How does, how does that work within the Giving Block?
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's funny because people ask us this all the time, and we're kind of like co everything, <laughs> like co CEO, co founders, like all this kind of stuff, um, and it's worked out really well for us. Um, you know, in the early days, it was very much kind of I'm the crypto guy, he's the nonprofit guy, but over time, we've of course both become experts in in both fields, and you know, I would say. We've been a great balance to one another because in a lot of ways, Pat is much more creative than I am. And I'm much more of like keep the trains running and like operationally minded. So it ends up being a good balance of of kicking ideas back and forth. And, you know, he'll come up with an idea. I'll tell him it's doable or it's not doable. Or I'll come up with an idea and he'll tell me it's way too boring or something like that. Right. <laughs> so it acts as a really good balance. And and so, you know, we've split a lot of our our work on a day to day basis based on our strengths, essentially, where I'll be a bit more you know, focused on, let's say, like the product side of things or crypto partnerships, whereas he's spending more time with like the sales and marketing teams, for example.
1: Is there a technical co-founder? I mean, the giving blocks a product company at the end of the day. Yeah, not, not
0: really. I mean, uh, I am somewhat technical, but I'm certainly not a developer or anything like that. Um, and we, we hired you know, an awesome team for that along the way as we went. Um, and we've got Vitaly on our team now, who's been with us for a couple of years. He's our director of engineering, um, and he helped us build an awesome product and, and development team. Um, that you know we, we Pat and I certainly couldn't have done this on our own from a, a technical perspective.
1: <laughs> what can we learn from the founding and growth of some of these great organizations that are just interested in social impact in general?
0: Yeah, I would say for us, I mean, we were just like so naive going into this whole thing, right like, and, and, and you could say this about a lot of like first time startup founders where you always think everything is gonna go so much more quickly than it really does. Right. Like when we started in 2018, we're like, all right, we've got the Lupus Foundation set up. All right. We're going to have 100 nonprofits set up this year, or whatever number we had in our head. Right. And everything, end of the day, took a lot longer than we expected it to, uh, which I would say is, I think, pretty typical. Probably of how a lot of startups go. <laughs> <I think it's laughs> um, it very took typical. us, Yeah. It took us way longer than we expected to get traction and, and really have the company hit sort of that tipping point of growth where things really took off. And I'd also say we sort of underestimated like how difficult it is to also just like run a company day to day, right? Like learning how to manage people and teams and hire good good staff members, right? Like all of those things that we both hadn't necessarily done very much of before in our previous jobs. I mean a lot of that stuff we just had to learn on the fly and just figure out as we go. And and now of course like what we're doing every day is very different than what we were doing every day a year ago. But yeah, I, I think for a lot of founders, like Hiring and managing people ends up taking up way more of your time than you're probably expecting, I would say.
1: What have you learned, for example, about the nonprofit sector that you were surprised by? I would say
0: one that, I mean, I I realized pretty early on and and one that I'm still surprised how often isn't known by kind of the general public or investors and things like that is just the, the size of the nonprofit market. Like I was so blown away by how many nonprofits there are in the US, how much is donated every year. And even, I forget what the number is, but you know nonprofits are one of the biggest employers in the country too. So just the, the absolute size and scale of the nonprofit market just really blew me away. And that's something we had trouble with early on too was when we were trying to raise money from investors, for example, um, most of them had no idea there was you know 1.5 million nonprofits in, in the US alone and there's over $400 billion donated every year. Like that was a huge hurdle for us and something that I was so surprised by how big it was relative to how few people seem to know what a huge market this was and how much was happening in this market. So that's something we're still kind of grappling with, I would say, in some ways. And, and our hope is that you know by building this company that we actually inspire a lot more entrepreneurs to build a startup in the nonprofit space. Because we think there's this perception that this is a small market and as a startup founder and entrepreneur, that there isn't a lot of opportunity and it's actually quite the opposite. So we hope it inspires more innovative companies serving this industry and and more people starting new companies in this industry. Because in a lot of ways, nonprofits have been kind of, in some ways, almost neglected from a lot of technology, right? Um, And they they haven't really been early adopters. and, And we're hoping that the giving block and, and crypto can play a role in changing that, where nonprofits can actually lead when it comes to adoption of something like crypto, and really set that pace of play to attract other founders to start companies in this industry. So that's something that's been really you know important to us from from day one. I mean, there's so much opportunity, and I, and I think a lot of people and and companies too are starting to realize that. Right, you see a lot more of kind of the the bigger you know technology companies starting to offer products. For nonprofits, and most of them weren't five years ago, right? Um, it's it's certainly much more on the radar of large companies now than than ever before. So hopefully that trend continues, so we can get the nonprofits, you know, all sorts of emerging technology that can then help them.
1: I'm curious. So you guys recently were acquired uh, by Shift Four. Can you talk a little bit about Shift4, kind of what it is, like what your relationship with them has been like? We just got
0: acquired by by Shift4 last week. And, you know, as a background for who they are as a company, you know, they're one of the largest payment companies in the world. They do over $200 billion in payments volume a year, and they have over 200,000 merchants using their payment products. Their kind of most dominant industries tend to be hotels, restaurants, bars, resorts, airlines, and nonprofits is actually a pretty new area for them. Um, so I imagine a lot of people in the the nonprofit space probably haven't heard of them yet. Um, but them acquiring us, you know, the strategy is, is essentially twofold. One is, to have the giving block kind of lead their efforts in the nonprofit space and create this as a new vertical for them, a new industry they want to serve beyond just crypto, right? It kind of starts with crypto in the giving block, but offering other payment products. Um, And the other piece is, you know, as a payments company, they want to start offering crypto solutions to their their merchants that they're already working with. So as part of this acquisition, we'll be, you know, leading this effort around this crypto innovation center that'll roll out crypto payments to the 200,000 merchants they're already serving and start integrating that into their products, while simultaneously, you know, trying to go deeper and deeper into the nonprofit space. Um, you know, before acquiring us, their their primary sort of nonprofit client was actually St. Jude. So they do all the the credit card processing for St. Jude. Um, and the founder of Shift4, really cool, you know, background story. He actually started Shift4 when he was 16, and has been running it ever since. Um, and about a a year ago, roughly. Um, he was actually the first civilian um, space pilot where he actually flew the SpaceX rocket. Like he was the pilot. He was the one flying it, and, you know, running the, the team who, who took that rocket to space. And as part of that, he actually turned that mission into a fundraiser for St. Jude. And he actually raised over $240 million for St. Jude. As part of that mission, which is just unbelievable, and wow. in, in essentially one campaign that he personally ran, um, so we just have really good alignment with with their leadership team there and them as a company wanting to, to grow and, and service more nonprofits.
1: Wow, were you guys looking to get acquired at this point, or was it you know did it, did it just sort of materialize for you? A little bit of both. (laughs) Okay. Um, Yeah. yeah, It was a little
0: bit of both. I mean, for us, we were only going to sell to someone if we thought it was the right partner and if we thought they were going to help us achieve our, our goals more quickly than we could on our own. So it's funny, Pat and I always joke like when we first came up with the Giving Block, there was essentially, you know, two things we wanted to do. We wanted to help nonprofits when it came to crypto and we wanted to push along crypto adoption more broadly. Um, and Shift4 is allowing us to do both of those things in a, on a much larger scale and much more quickly. Um, so we couldn't have found a, a better partner that lets us hit on both of those goals in a way that we, I mean, we really couldn't have done before. I mean, we have way more resources than we've ever had before now. And for the most part, you know, the Giving Block is gonna keep operating as its own brand relatively independently, but with all the firepower of Shift4 behind us, helping us scale and grow more quickly. and you know, sure, we, we could have kept going at it on our own, but I think this just allows us to have a way, way larger impact on the nonprofit space and on crypto adoption more broadly than
1: if we kept going at it on our own. What is the next thing for the giving block? Yeah,
0: in, in some ways, it's a lot of what we were already doing, but just faster and better. <laughs> now the shift towards backing, you know, Pat and I are still going to run the day to day business and keep executing on the, the vision and the roadmap and, and goals that we've had. Um, But I would say, you know, we expect crypto philanthropy just to take off more than ever. Um, You know, I think this could be the first year where we see, you know, let's call it close to a billion dollars in crypto donated. Um, So it's still early days for for crypto and we're really excited to be bringing more nonprofits into the fold. You know, I think we'll add, you know, let's call it roughly 5,000 new nonprofits to our platform this year, which sounds like a lot, but in the grand scheme of things is still Relatively early days when you think about the whole nonprofit market, so that's really exciting for us. And and you know, like we briefly talked about earlier, you know, we really want to kick this thing off big with this new campaign that we'll be announcing soon, uh, that we expect to be the biggest you know crypto fundraising campaign in, in history.
1: What do you think the the future is for cryptocurrencies in general, the blockchain and its role in the social sector?
0: I mean, I think this will really be a a breakout for a lot of different crypto use cases, both in the social sector and, and more widely. We're certainly starting to see a lot of use cases outside of just donations, too, when it comes to crypto. So, for example, you know, there's some nonprofits doing pilots for cash distribution um, as a, essentially a more efficient way of delivering aid on the ground because they're able to directly send an end recipient cash or a trusted party that's going to distribute that, that crypto for cash. Um, So a lot more use cases beyond donations. You know, for some organizations, I think they're viewing it as, you know, donations is kind of step one. And then they start to think about what else can we do with crypto. So a lot of them are thinking through those types of use cases. But, you know, I think it's probably a long time still, at least a couple of years before that becomes common. For us, you know, we kind of have the approach of, you know, let's... Take it easy, start slow, start with crypto donations, right? Don't get ahead of yourself. We have nonprofits sometimes coming to us and they want to start their own cryptocurrency or they want to launch a DAO or something like that. And we're like, all right, well, let's let's take this slow, right? You guys haven't even started accepting crypto donations yet. So, you know, it's funny because when people get excited about crypto, they get so excited about crypto and we so often have to kind of like be the... <laughs> the fun stoppers of like, no, let's like, let's take it a step back, right, and not go like too deep into the the crypto deep end too quickly. Because ultimately, like, there's a lot of things nonprofits have to be thinking about. Crypto isn't the only thing. Um, So making sure they still have a balanced approach where it's not, you know, crypto shouldn't be something that's taking over the whole organization and all they talk about or think about. still a lot of other factors.
1: (laughs) What do organizations need to look out for or common mistakes that are made? concerns that they wouldn't necessarily think of off the bat? I mean, of course, my answer is going to be biased because I'll say that we've tried to eliminate most of those
0: kind of risks and concerns (laughs) from a product perspective. But what we see on kind of an executional side of things would be kind of what we talked about earlier of like some nonprofits will get set up to accept crypto and then just like refuse to talk about it and like not even once post about it or announce it, no matter how often we'll we'll give them some guidelines and some templates Mm -hmm. and stuff to help them with. So that's a common mistake and sort of pitfall. And then a week into it, they're like, why haven't we gotten any donations? And it's like, well, it's only been a week and you also haven't even told a new one yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So that's a, a relatively common scenario, not common, but, but we see that occasionally. And then some of the other stuff would just be using us enough. Like we're really here to help nonprofits kind of navigate the world of crypto. So like we'll have nonprofits sending us ideas on like, hey, we had this donor reach out and they wanna give us you know, one billion of this new coin that has some ridiculous name and is brand new. And then we've got to tell them, unfortunately, that you can't actually accept this because it's not actually worth anything. Um, so just kind of like making sure they're being thoughtful when they start taking crypto, if they do have donors reaching out with what seem like maybe unusual requests, um, kind of making sure they, they come to us with that so we can vet some of those opportunities for them. Gotcha, I think that's,
1: that's actually a big one, you know, with crypto sort of being in the Wild West, phase at the moment, I'm sure there are tons of people out there trying to pump their own coins or whatever, Um, and making sure there is actually a publicly accepted valuation to the coin before bending over backwards to accept it is probably an important move, I think.
0: Yeah. And they'll all tell you, right, their coin's going to be the next Bitcoin.
1: <laughs> right, and, right. <laughs> yeah, Maybe exactly. not the Doge guys, but everybody else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm curious about your upbringing a little bit. Was philanthropy woven into, you know, your childhood? Was it important to your folks?
0: Yeah. I mean, in terms of my up- upbringing, it was like in a pretty typical middle class family. My dad was a realtor. Um, my mom worked as an assistant, so pretty typical middle class jobs. Both parents were working. Um, but always a very like entrepreneurial mindset, I would say with my parents. Um, like my mom always had like some side hustles going on where she was thinking of new business ideas and trying to figure out a way to just make a little bit of extra cash on the weekends or after work and, and things like that. So that was a lot of the, the conversation around the dinner table and things like that. Um, and yeah, they, they all f- often did talk a lot about giving back, even though we didn't necessarily have the means to make like huge donations. Or like my mom still will text me now and ask me, like, if I've come across any new nonprofits that I just like really love, because she's always interested in learning more about new nonprofits that I can recommend to her and that she can research. Um, so it was something we we often did talk about. And, you know, it was kind of like our, our dream to kind of start a company like this. Um, and they were always, you know, really supportive of like, yeah, just, you know, if you work hard enough, like. I'm sure you can be successful in starting your own company and you know, here we are kind of.
1: (laughs) Did you do any volunteering or, or impact work as a you know, kid or high school kid?
0: Yeah, but I would say it was um like the kind of the typical stuff a lot of people do in high school and college, right? Like volunteering at like Habitat for Humanity or a Soup Kitchen here and there, things like that. Um, so it it was part of my life, but I you know, honestly wouldn't say it was necessarily a big part of my life until I got to college and even, you know, more so after I graduated college.
1: What are some of the most important causes that humanity needs to tackle right now?
0: Yeah, I mean, mine kind of goes back to what got me excited about crypto, kind of this topic of human rights has been something that I'm always really interested in and how technology can really empower people. And right now I think Bitcoin and crypto are one of the most important technologies when it comes to human rights and empowerment, especially in developing countries. I just think there's so much sort of untapped potential when it comes to emerging technologies like Bitcoin and crypto. Like we talked about earlier, right, with like Venezuela, Afghanistan, and particularly in countries where there's either a corrupt government, an unstable financial system or currency, and they've got hyperinflation, like those kinds of places can benefit the most usually from something like Bitcoin and crypto. So I'm really interested in, in personally working with groups that are
1: tackling that um, and, and looking at ways to help people in those countries. What's the path not taken for you? you know, if you weren't uh, a social entrepreneur working at the giving block and launching crypto out to the social sector and, and beyond, what do you think it is that you'd enjoy doing and uh, you know how what, what's the what do you think your career might've taken you, if not for this?
0: You know, I, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I certainly probably would have stayed in some sort of management consulting role for a while until I figured out what I wanted to do, essentially. I always saw that as sort of a stepping stone to help me learn about a lot of different roles and in industries until I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Um, I always knew I wanted to start a business at, at some point, I just wasn't sure what the business was going to be yet. <laughs> and I saw consulting as kind of the perfect place to start to get ideas and to learn as much as possible, as quickly as possible. So I wouldn't be surprised if I was uh, you know, still a consultant otherwise, kind of waiting for the, the big breakthrough idea.
1: <laughs> gotcha. Any big hobbies or things you do in your personal life that you know are, are passion projects for you?
0: Um, you know, Pat and I always joke that, you know, unfortunately we've, we we do not really have any hobbies anymore right now. <laughs> um, but when it you know comes to things I, I do enjoy doing, like, you know, after work or on the weekends, like certainly a big focus on just getting outside, getting some fresh air in the sun, going for a walk, exercising, um, that kind of stuff is, you know, some of the most relaxing for me. Um, especially I moved to Miami recently, so you know, it's great to go for a walk along the, the Miami River here or something like that at the end of a day, or, or go to the gym or hang by the pool or something like that.
1: Yeah, what prompted the move out of curiosity?
0: So, part of it was simply because this is kind of the place to be now for crypto entrepreneurs. Um, there was just like a huge, almost like a, a mass migration of, of crypto and tech people from a lot of different places all around the country to Miami and, and more generally South Florida. Um, it's really become quite the tech and crypto hub. I have a ton of friends who have moved down here. And just from even a work perspective, it just made sense to, to come down here and be around that community of entrepreneurs. And, you know, the, the nice weather doesn't hurt either.
1: <laughs> All right, well, now the easy one. You know, how, how uh, if, if organizations are inspired to take on crypto and use that as a fundraising channel, like how do they get signed up with The Giving Block?
0: Yeah, so easiest way is to go to our website, thegivingblock.com. Um, and then you can, you know, click on the 15 different buttons we have around the website that ask you to book a demo. <laughs> um, that's the easiest way to get in touch with us. And if you fill out that form, we'll essentially have someone on the team reach out. They can book a 30-minute session with you one-on-one, give you a rundown of how everything works, run you through what it's like to make a donation, um, and, you know, give you all the details that you would need to, to make a decision if, if crypto is right for your organization. And yeah, otherwise, I'd say follow us on social media, Twitter, of course. Being our most active channel, um, and then signing up for our, our weekly newsletter at the bottom of our website. I would just say as one last plug that you know, <laughs> crypto is not as as complicated as you might think it is when it comes to getting set up to start accepting crypto. So. I would say don't be turned off by the idea of accepting crypto if you're just worried about it being too technical or, or too complicated.
1: You know, I, I know that you guys are early stage still. It's amazing that you sold already at, at this at this early juncture, but excited to see the potential and, and what comes next. So yeah, thanks again for sharing your time and insights. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Mike. That's our show for this week. As always, there's more information in the show notes. Please check them out at causeandpurpose.org. And thanks for listening. We're gonna be doing something a little bit different next week. We'll have not just one founder, but two, and enjoying a few cocktails while we record. Our guests will be the founders, activists, and all-around wonderful people geeking out about inclusion, STEM, and how we get greater access to philanthropic support for minority founders, from Black Girls Hack and Cyberjitsu, Tanisha Martin, and Mary Galloway. Hope you can join us with your favorite beverage in hand. Until then, Cause and Purpose has been a production of Moonshot.co. On behalf of myself, Alex, and our entire team, thank you for listening, and we look forward to speaking again soon.